Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Some time ago I noticed that I had developed a habit of eating a, um, a root beer float uh, before bed every night. Um, and this went on for several weeks, okay? And, um, and, and so right after the kids would go to bed, I would get um, two scoops. I'd get like this mason jar, right? I'd get two scoops of homemade vanilla bluebell ice cream, which is the king of all ice creams. I'd drop that in there. I would drown that in some Barks root beer, and, and I would eat that. I don't particularly remember myself being stressed during this time of my life, but whatever stresses that I did have melted away um, with my ice cream. I like to do this after the kids go to bed because, you know, I don't like to share. And um, when, in the morning when they saw the glass sitting on the counter, I'd blame their mom. You know, I'd be like, mom, she has a problem. You know, that kind of thing. So um, it was just kind of the, the what I did. But I noticed after doing this for a couple of weeks, stuff started to happen, right? Like, like my jeans got tighter. Um, like, uncomfortably so. And uh, my shirts weren't fitting as loose as, as possible. I talked to Jackie about it, and she lied. She, she said she wasn't washing the clothes any differently, um, but I know she was or something, because something was definitely happening. Um, and and it, it became obvious this is probably ill-advised. It, I looked it up. It's about 780 uh, to 800 calories every night right before you go to bed, and not the good kind either. Um, so this was really bad. And and even with my, my vigorous daily routine of doing next to nothing, I couldn't keep up with the, the calorie intake. It, just, it was just going to hurt me eventually. So I decided that this was going to be um, something that was not sustainable. This was just not going to be sustainable. And, and to think about that, and to think about the word sustainable or sustainability, it seems to be sort of the hot topic right now. Uh, it does not matter what field you are in, or what topic you are talking about, it seems that we are all obsessed with this concept of what is sustainable? Can I sustain this? What can we uh, make sure is, uh, we're, we're focused on sustainability, meaning to lift up, to make sure that something is going. I hear this conversation, like I said, in a number of different disciplines, in a number of different realms of our lives. Teachers right now, many of them are talking about uh, whether or not it is sustainable to keep uh, uh, trying to educate children online and in the classroom and the workload that that has, you know, doubled, tripled on them to try to maintain essentially two environments. Churches are dealing with this as well. We are sort of trying to figure out what does church look like in the fu- future. We have for a long time been built around this concept of buildings and people coming together. And now we are doing ministries, which the, the b- majority of the people uh, uh, partaking in our ministry are online. And we're happy that they are online. But does that shift what we do? Does that shift what we are doing here as a church? Restaurants, as you've noticed, are, are trying to decide whether or not this is sustainable. They've shifted to try to include things like dine-in and carry-out. And some are doing delivery now that have never done that before. And they're wondering, we're wondering, if even the industry is sustainable in the way that it is right now. There's all of these things that are pressuring us. And those things that I mentioned— Those are issues of sustainability that affect all of us. 
They're, they're the sort of things that are sort of um, broad sweeping. But even with that being the case, I think a lot of us have dealt uh, a number of different phases in our life with this question of sustainability. Maybe right now, you have, you personally have a job in which you are miserable. You don't like your boss, you don't like the work culture, and you're trying to decide, and maybe you've talked to um, somebody that you love, a, a spouse or a good friend, and you're wondering, is this sustainable? Can I keep doing this? Surely you have had a friendship before, a toxic relationship in which the person is always negative or critical. And you're thinking, I really want to kind of distance myself from this person, but is that the Christian thing to do? I don't know if I can sustain this relationship. Our college students, I've talked to several of them. I've just watched and, and watched how people are talking. And you signed up for something a couple of years ago. You had a degree plan. Remember that? This degree plan, you thought you knew what you were going to do. You visited a campus that now you're not supposed to be on all of that much. And so we're wondering if the way we did college before and this educational system and structure that we have, is that sustainable? We have a group of students right now over in uh, the student center. They're in their small groups. They're, they're worshiping and they're learning together. And a lot of them are trying to decide whether or not this is, they're, they're going to school, they have part-time jobs, and now they have um, extracurriculars, all this kind of stuff piled on one another. At different stages in our lives, we wrestle with the concepts of whether or not these things are sustainable. Can I, here's the big question, can I sustain what is happening? Can I be sustained under the stress and the current level that is facing me. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And God promises in his text in Isaiah 46, God promises to sustain us. He is speaking in this text particularly and specifically to a, to a nation, the, the nation of Israel. But it's the same God and it's the same promise. As he promised them to sustain them through their hardships, he promises that he will sustain all of his people through their difficulties and their hardships. Today we're going to be talking about the concept of sustainability and whether or not we can sustain the life that we are living. Here's what God says in Isaiah 46 verse 4, I have made you, I will carry you, I will bear and rescue you. So let's talk about that today, but before we do, let's pray together. God, thank you for your words. Thank you for this moment in which we come together. God, as Jackie mentioned earlier, we are facing uncertain times, not the way that commercials have said that for the last several months, but the way the next week is going to be. We're just not totally sure how things are going to flesh out. And so, God, there is this shakiness. There's this feeling of jumping into a cold river and not knowing exactly how these things are going to turn out, that we are nervous. But we do know that in this text, as you have divinely uh, planned for it to be spoken today, this text reminds us that through all stages of our life, in all situations, you will sustain us. So God, I pray today that we would launch out from this safe harbor this morning, resting in that reality that you got us, that you will carry us, that you will make sure that things are all right. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Isaiah 46. If you have your Bible, open to Isaiah 46 towards the end of that large book there. I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. That's my preferred English uh, translation. I'm going to be looking par particularly at 3 through 13. We're going to look at it in three chunks. 
So hopefully you have it by now. Verse 3 through 4, this is what the Word of God says. Listen to me, house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been sustained from the womb, carried all along since birth. I will be the same until your old age. I will bear you up when you turn gray or bald. It doesn't say that, but it's implied. I have made you and I will carry you. I will bear and rescue you. God, particularly to the nation, is promising them that no matter what they go through, that he is going to sustain them, that he's going to, he's going to lift them up. He's going to make sure that they are provided for, that they are solid. It's an interesting promise that he gives because he could have promised anything. He could have promised money or success, but that's not what he promises. Instead, he promises sustainability, that he is going to uplift them and make sure that they're okay. That's what God is specifically issuing to these people uh, this morning as he says that. It is, it is, like I said, sustainability means to hold up or to provide for or to make sure things are steady because, and this is good, because there are certain times in our lives and certain times in their lives in which we as a people or we as individuals feel as though the ground we are standing on is shaky. That things are not as stable as we thought they were. That at any moment things get turned upside down and we're not entirely sure that everything's not going to fall on us or that we're going to fall. We feel that way like, like a lot, right? Even if you don't really kind of pinpoint it or put it down, we feel that way. You remember when you were going from like, uh, like elementary school to middle school and you were totally uncertain about, uh, you know, social relationships, about how things were going to work out, about your workload? You, you went from middle school to high school and you started to hear things like, like the teachers are going to, they're going to expect this from you and you better know this stuff or you're going to get over there to the high school and, and they're really going to get you. You were afraid of that. There was this uncertainty and that happens every stage of life. As we go through life, there's this constant unshakiness, just about the moment where you feel like, okay, I got this. Okay, I'm doing good at this life stage. Then your wife comes to you and she says, hey, we're going to have a kid. And you're like, ah, everything is falling. I'm not totally sure that any of this is going to work out. We feel that way in our personal lives. We feel that way in our country. We feel that way in our organizations. I mean, it wasn't a full year ago that everything was just okay. Things were just kind of smoothly going along, and now everything feels shaky. God says in Psalm 75, 3, When the earth and all its inhabitants shake, I am the one who steadies the pillars. Psalms 55, 22, Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. God will sustain us. God has promised to sustain his people. It's interesting in the time frame that he puts in 3 through 4, he says, from the womb until your natural death. From the womb until you turn gray, until you are old. All the way from the womb until you are old. At the very least, what we can pull from this is this belief and this understanding that the Bible is extremely clear that God does value human life from the womb all the way to a natural death, all the way to death. God values human life. And there is no concept or reality in which those who follow God do not also value human life from the womb all the way until death. God has a value for human life. And what he says is that he is willing to sustain us through all the stages of our life. This is helpful because it reminds us, 
It reminds us as Christians, it reminds us as ministers, it reminds us as ministers of the gospel, ambassadors of God as you are, that we ought to be uh, worried or concerned. We ought to care and love people from all generations, from no matter how young they are and to no matter how old they are. This helps me as a pastor of a church. Sometimes, accidentally, I don't believe on purpose, but sometimes churches will focus in too much on a certain generation or a certain demographic. Their church will be all about the young families to the exclusion of the others. They will be all about the young professionals or all about the college age, or they will be all about the senior adults and all about a certain way of having church. And that's not what God called us to do. Instead, God wants us to minister to every generation because God values every generation from the womb until death. That's what God values. And so we are to value that. Not only does it speak to the reality that no matter what generation you find yourself in, no matter what stage of life you are currently occupying, but that all of your life, God will care for you. Throughout the whole experience, he says, from the when you were there until you turned gray, I have you. I've got you. I will sustain you. I will carry you. I will bear you. I will rescue you. In the middle of all of that, in the middle of that truth, he lays down this this, uh, foundational reality. Verse 4 says, I will be the same until your old age. I will bear you up when you turn gray. I have made you. This is really the, uh, the linchpin. This is the understanding of what God is saying. He says, I will sustain you because I made you. I made you, meaning that I know what you need and I know where you're going. I know how to do this. I know what you need and I have personal investment in you. I made you. One of the things that we forget as we're reading Isaiah and as we see Isaiah speaking to the nation of Israel is that the nation of Israel is a people that God made, that God formed, that long ago from this um, idolatry, Uh, idol-worshiping nation, God calls this man out. He calls this one person out, and he gives that one person and his wife a family, and he nurtures that family, and he protects that family. And no matter how much dumb that guy does, God keeps protecting him and holding him. And that one man turns into one family, and that one family grows and grows until it's this huge amount of people. And God loves those people and provides for those people. And then God rescues those people from enslavement. He brings them out as this big mess of, of people, gives them a law, gives them a leader, and gives them a religion, and forms this nation, and then he gives them a land in which they are to occupy it. This nation that Isaiah is speaking to is a nation that God literally, through time and providence, formed. And as he's speaking to them, he's saying, I will sustain you. I made you. The same is true for the church. That over 2,000 years ago, Jesus our Messiah, Jesus our Lord says, I will build my church, my called out people. I will call out these people and I will establish them on this reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that upon that rock, no matter how bad things get, they can't beat you. And no matter where you go, you will win those things. What is bound in heaven will be bound on earth. I will form this church. I have created this church. I have established these people. And so, when things get scary, and when the water is cold, and when the night is dark, then don't worry about that. I will sustain you. I made you. I formed you. I know what you need, and I have personal investment in making sure that things are going the way that I want them to go. One of the 
most popular critiques against Christians, particularly in the social media age, is this idea of thoughts and prayers. Anytime there's something that happens in our, in our world and in our nation, there'll be all of these, uh, these posts that goes up and these posters that will be displayed. Thoughts and prayers. Prayers for New Orleans and thoughts and prayers for uh, California fire victims. Those sort of things. These thoughts and prayers. And people will laugh, they'll scoff, and they'll say, what good are your thoughts and your prayers? What good are just thinking? And what good are just these happy thoughts that you are sending? And to them, I agree. There is nothing really all that beneficial from happy thoughts. But for those of us who are Christians, know this, that prayer is not not doing anything. Prayer is doing a lot. Prayer is doing the most that we can do in most situations. Thoughts and prayers are good. But for those who who are Baptists, know this. Thoughts and prayers is not all we do. It's never been all we do. We always have thoughts. We always have prayers. And we always send people and money and resources and supplies. We always run into the dark and into the disaster. Thoughts and prayers is not all we do. But I understand the critique when people say, what good are just thoughts? And I understand that. And I agree. That's why I would say this. God is not just sending you happy thoughts. From the womb until you die, happy thoughts. From, from your birth until your natural death, blessings. That's not God's response. In fact, God acts. That's what's going on in 5 through 7 as he compares himself to an idol. To whom will you compare me or make me equal? Who will you measure me with so that we we should be like each other? To those who pour out their bags of gold and weigh out silver on scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they kneel and bow down before it. They lift it on their shoulders and catch this part, and they bear it along. He just got done saying, I will bear you. I will lift you up. I will sustain you. They make fake gods that they bear that the people themselves lift up. I will, uh, they bear it along. They set it in its place, and there it stands. It does not budge from its place. They cry out to it, but it does not answer. It saves no one from his trouble. God contrasts, compare and contrast the real God with these fake gods. And God says, first and foremost, I was not made. They make their gods. I was not made. In fact, like he said in verse 4, I made you. You can't make your God. I made you. Then he goes these three very pointed statements about those false gods. He says, it does not budge. It does not answer. It does not save. It does not budge. Our God moves. God acts. As he says, I will sustain you. It's not just a happy thoughts. It's not just just a, a happy feelings going in your direction. He's saying, I will sustain you by actually acting on your behalf. I will move heaven and earth. I will do what I need to do to execute the plan that I have to sustain you. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a guy named Joseph. Joseph's uh, siblings sell him into slavery. Later on, he confronts his brothers. His brothers are nervous about it, and his brothers say, or Joseph says, don't worry about it. Listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. When he says that, when he says that, when you remember the story, his selling into slavery, his being wrongly accused of rape, his being imprisoned and forgotten, all of that, God was working. Even when you didn't see it, God was moving. Their gods don't budge. Our God moves. Early December 2014, 
Woke up that morning. I was living in, in the Dallas area there, about 20, 30 minutes from, from downtown. And what you immediately noticed is that there was this massive fog on uh, the community there. And I thought it was pretty much localized. But as the news started to play and as the social media started to post, we got these pictures that surfaced of Dallas that were pretty uh, awe-inspiring. They're breathtaking. If you've ever been to Dallas or you've ever heard of it, it's a pretty large city. It's a massive city with a million massive buildings. This huge, big city was completely engulfed, hidden from a fog. The fog that morning was so bad, you, you know, you normally say you can barely drive through it. You have to barely, you had to barely walk. You could barely see in front of you. And not just localized by some lake or by some pond, but the entire region was completely covered. What we noticed that morning as pictures began to surface, we were finding out that the city did not. That the city wasn't there anymore. That it was gone. And it was this weird feeling for a bunch of people who oriented themselves around this massive city. In a similar way, we've got to remind ourselves that even when we don't see it, even when we can't articulate what God is doing, God is still there. There's a million things that will fog our vision. There's a million things that block us from seeing this massive God that is working out His ways. But God is still there. Their gods don't budge. Our gods, our God moves. It says their God will not answer. Their God will not speak back, but our God speaks when you pray. Our God, in fact, wrote down his words, and you can read them. Our God does speak. One of the biggest examples of this in the Old Testament is the story of a man named Elijah. He's standing on a mountain, and he's taunting some other people, and he's saying, Get your gods to send fire, but their gods were not. In fact, he messed with them a little bit. He said, Maybe your God is asleep. Pray louder. Maybe your God is in the restroom. Pray even louder. He keeps messing with them. He's saying, is your God going to answer? And eventually in 1 Kings 18, 37 through 38, this is what Elijah prays. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trenches. Our God answers. Our God moves, and our God answers. Not only does our God move, but our, and our God answers, but he also saves. A God that cannot move and a God that cannot answer makes a horrible Savior. It's not a very good hero, but our God does save. Our God will save us. That's why he says he can sustain us because he can save us. He will move on our behalf. He will answer when we pray. He will save us when we are incapable. This is what our God does. And here's the rub. None of you are taking off all of your gold and your earrings and your, and, and your, and your jewelry. You're not all taking them down to Sissy's Log Cabin and handing them to him saying, Hey, make me an idol. Make me a funny little Buddha man so that I can, I can worship it. Nobody bows to this God. Nobody has these statues in your home that you're bound to. I get that. But what this text does is confront what I call the idols of sustainability. This concept of sustainability. Often, we in our culture, just, it's just kind of the way that we're wired. We have this deep-rooted concept that if we find the right thing, if we bow to the right thing, if we give worth to the right thing or person or coach or concept, then we will figure out how to be sustainable. That 
that we will get nutritional coaches and, 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 and um, like uh, life coaches that will teach us how to manage our, cal- our calendars, that we will visualize what is good and then that we will achieve that sort of thing, that we will have this concept that if we have the right daily calendar or we have the right journal and we have it like digitally and we can put it all in the exact right way or if we have the right spreadsheet or we have the right concept or if we have the right science and the right scientists, then we will stumble upon sustainability. We will be able to make this whole thing keep going indefinitely. We bow to the idols of sustainability. And listen, there's nothing wrong at all with organization, with manufacturing healthy staff culture. There's nothing wrong with science and scientists. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But what is wrong is when we look to those things to be the answer to this issue that is really bothering us is that we can't keep going on our own. That eventually we run out of steam. Eventually we can't hold all of this together as much as we really want to, so we bow and we worship some sort of other idol. And God confronts that and says, look, it doesn't answer It doesn't move on your behalf, and it won't save you. Your science, your organization, your better thoughts, your healthy culture, in the end, they won't save you. They won't ultimately save you. There's nothing wrong with those things, but they won't ultimately save you. These actions are what God does. He sustains us. He's working on our behalf, doing what we cannot do. He hears us and he rescues us in our time of need. And all of that is good and all of that is helpful, knowing that when it is shaky, God is there to help. But know this, it is not random. One of the most beautiful and awe-inspiring things about God is that he is not a God who reacts. He's a God who only acts. He sets his course and he goes. And he is the immovable mover. God has a plan and a purpose, and he's working all of these things toward his end in mind. The next section, I want to start down in the middle of verse 11. Hear the words of God. He says, yes, I have spoken, so I will also bring it about. I have planned it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you hard-hearted far removed from justice. I am bringing my justice near. It is not far away and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, my splendor in Israel. What God is saying here is that he has said it, it will happen. I love the way that God says that. It's so bold. It is so direct. God says, I planned it. It's going to happen. Stop worrying about things. I already said I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it done. That's how God responds to this constant worry that we have. He says, I have a plan. I have a plan. I have planned it. I will also do it. We've said this before, but it bears repeating that the one who is almighty has a direction. He is not just haphazardly sitting back, hoping that things turn out. He has a plan, and he's going to make it happen. Here specifically, he says he's going to bring justice, and he's going to bring salvation. It's a particular justice and salvation. He's talking to the nation that he made that is in captivity to Babylon, saying this, I am going to come, and I am going to bring justice. Those who enslaved you, those who have treated you unfairly, those who have killed you and taken you from my land, I will pour out my judgment on them, and then I will rescue those who have put their trust in me. There is justice and there is salvation. And, not to spoil the story for you, but that's exactly what he does. Eventually, he pours out his judgment on Babylon, he rescues his people, and he brings them back to the land. That is 
actually what the text is talking about, but there's an implication here. Because none of us are in captivity to a foreign enemy. None of us are enslaved in that regard. We still need God's justice and his salvation. Here's the truth of what the Bible says, that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you will trust who Jesus is, then justice is met. God's justice is poured out on Jesus. That's why the Bible says that sin was poured out on Jesus. He became sin who knew no sin. That the penalty for our rebellion was poured out on Jesus Christ. Justice is met so that you can receive salvation if you trust him. But here's the truth, and it would be hateful. It would be mean for me not to share this with you. If you reject Jesus, if you live your life constantly pushing Jesus away, if you live your life constantly thinking you have all of this under control, then you will be the recipient of God's justice. His judgment will pour out on you for all of eternity, separated from God. You will reap what Jesus already paid for. You will pay for justice. And so the, 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 the invitation for you today is don't do that. Don't do that. Call out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Accept what Jesus has already paid, and salvation can be given to you. Because, and hear me on this, this is what God says. He said it, and it will happen. You can't hide from this reality that he will sustain us. Listen, it's also helpful, and it's encouraging, not only because we need him to enact justice and salvation, and he does, but that it is total and that it is complete. What kind of loving God would get you through middle school but then drop you for all of eternity? What kind of loving God would sustain you through the early years of marriage trying to figure all of that out but then not sustain you through the afterlife? When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's not a God that we made with our hands that we set on a pedestal. It is the God of all eternity. He said it. It will happen. He planned it. He will do it. What it reminds me of is this also, is that God has a plan, and you are part of it. One of the things that this text really confronts, as I said, is the concept of these idols of sustainability. It's not just the idols of sustainability that we need to be worried about. It's the lie of sustainability. Here's the underlying question or the underlying assumption in most of our conversations when it comes to sustainability. And whether it's your work or your world— whether it's your energy level and what you can produce for your employer, or whether it's the world and the resources that we have and that we have been given. The underlying assumption is that we are able to sustain it. That somewhere along the lines, if we figure it out, then we can make it go self-sufficient forever. That if we figure out exactly how to arrange our work week and arrange our staff and arrange our profit and our goals, if we figure out exactly how to arrange what we're consuming and what we're contributing and exactly the way that we are uh, living within this world, then we can make it sustain forever. But here's the reality. We were never called to sustain the world or the work. We were never enabled to sustain the world and the work. God sustains. We steward. We are called to steward what God gives us, to manage what God gives us for as long as he gives us, gives us 
for his glory. There is a huge difference in the idea that if I can figure it out, I can make me self-sufficient. If I can figure it out, I can make this world self-sufficient. And the reality of, I was never made to be self-sustaining. I was actually created to be dependent on God. And he sustains me. Not me sustain me. Not me sustain us. It is not our burden to bear to sustain the world that he created. God will sustain us. So here's the reminder and here's the help. In verse 8 it says very clearly, Remember this and be brave. Remember this and be brave. There is so much fear about what is next. There is so much fear about what we are going into, whether it's the next seven days or the next 700 years. We are concerned and we're worried about what's going forward. And the Bible tells you to remember this and be brave, that he will sustain us as a church. We are not in any sort of problem, but we could be one day. There could be a time where we as a church are, are, are maybe struggling because a lot of people uh, lost their jobs and so finances aren't coming in. There could be this challenge that faces us. And what I want to tell you in times of good so that we know in times of bad is this, that if we ever find ourselves sitting around and wondering, is this sustainable? Know this, that God sustains us that we can remember that he made us. He knows what we need, and he's personally invested in this church and in his church. He's going to sustain his church. He's going to sustain his people. Some of you are worried about Tuesday night. You're worried about Wednesday morning. You're worried about the world we're going to live in post-election. And I get why, but know this, God will sustain you. You have to remember that he has always sustained you and that he always will. Last Saturday, not yesterday, but the Saturday before, uh, a couple of guys, myself and a couple of guys, we went kayaking. Because of water levels, last minute we decided to change to the Little Red River. We were going to go to the Buffalo, but we decided to go to the Little Red River, which, by the way, it's my first time, which, by the way, is neither little nor red. And so we went to this Little Red River. And if you know anything about Arkansas rivers— or the Little Red River. The Little Red River is colder than other rivers in Arkansas because of its water source. And so it's very cold. And if you remember last weekend, it was very cold, okay? So the air was cold, the water was cold, everything about it was was what I would call freezing. Obviously, it wasn't freezing because we were moving, but still, it was freezing. I was, I was so cold. I was cold down to my bones, but I love kayaking so much, I would do it tomorrow. I love being out there. So I was so cold. At one point, I was so cold that I was convinced that when I got home and took off my socks, then a couple of toes were going to come out with it. I was just that. I couldn't feel anything. I thought my toes were soaking wet. I thought, this is painful. This part is not fun. We got somewhere. I was able to change my socks, and when I changed my my socks, I realized my other socks were completely dry. I was just that cold. Nothing was wet. I was just cold down to my bones. Halfway through the trip, we were looking for a place to pull over and eat lunch. And the Little Red doesn't have as many uh, shoals and those kind of things to pull over like in the Buffalo. And so um, it was kind of hard. We passed this one uh, fishing dock, this boat ramp, and they had a chiminea on it. It wasn't lit, and there was nobody on it, but there's this chimney, this outside fire pit right there on the chair. And I found myself longing for that chimney, like a desire. I want to hug that chimney right there. I want to set a fire in it, put my feet in it, and then hug that chimney. And it was just weird, like, 
you know when you start to go crazy? Anybody else go crazy? I do regularly. And so I looked at that thing and I was like, I want to hug that chimney. But we just kept floating. There wasn't anywhere else. I started to notice that some of these cabins, some of these houses, they had chimneys, fireplaces. There's this nice little smoke was wafting off the top. I thought to myself, I'm a real nice guy. I could just walk in that house and talk my way out of whatever's on the other side of that door. I think so because I am so cold. Some of those lodges on the side of the Little Red River there had two chimneys. I just wanted one chimney, and they had two chimneys. I was so bitterly cold. The whole way I'm thinking in myself, uh, to myself, I'm thinking, when I get home, I'm going to put a fire in my fireplace. I'm going to put my feet right over there. I cannot wait for fire. Everything in me, all I could think about for the last half of that trip was fire. Now hear me on this. That's the way we tend to think of God sustaining us. We think that we're going down this journey and we're going down this life and that we think these happy thoughts. That if you think nice things about God, then he'll get you through. That one day in the sweet by and by, then God will be there and it'll be okay. We think of God like I thought of fire. But hear me on this. God sustaining us is not the fire. God sustaining us is the boat. The thing that was carrying me through. I told you that that water was frigid, and it was. The wind was cold. Everything about it was cold. If I was in that water for that period of time, there's no way that I would have survived it. I would have died in that water So hear me on this. God is not the happy, warm thoughts that'll get you through. God is literally the vessel that carries you through or else you will die. We have to start realizing that God is what carries us. God is what holds us. God sustains us. He uplifts us. He will carry us through because, and I'm telling you this is the truth and I think you all know it, we're in cold water. We're in water that without him we would die but God sustains it. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.